So it was also very confusing to me that like these people who really do want to help do so much harm and are so kind of cruel sometimes. And I think in this day and age, the field of psychology slash psychiatry is, is our modern day religion. We come together around these sets of ideas that tells us how we're supposed to live, what's right and wrong as far as how we should be and exist in the world. It helps us make sense of everything. If somebody's hurt, well, then that's because their brain is broken or whatever it might be. We don't have to really ever deal with the ambiguity and messiness of it all. It's all because of genes and we have simple answers for it. And it's really about trying to get people to accept and conform to this culture that we're in rather than ever changing the culture. I am so excited to be having this conversation with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Noelle Hunter. She is a clinical psychologist, the founder and director of MindClear Psychotherapy, and she specializes in trauma dissociation and psychosis. She also wrote a wonderful book full of really compelling research called Trauma and Madness in Mental Health Services. She's a fierce advocate. She comes to this work from her own lived experience. And as a dissenting clinician who uses her sharp critique of the mental health system to advocate for humane treatment, she's certainly someone who I have learned so much from. So today we talk about issues within the trauma field, defensiveness in psychology and psychiatry, clinical ethics, our vision for the future of mental health, and why crisis can sometimes be absolutely crucial to change. Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell, and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and, and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here, so let's dive in. Noelle, welcome to the Deathwork Podcast. I'm so, so happy to be talking to you. I'm so happy to be here. So, Thanks for having um, me. <laughs> yes, of course. I personally have really learned a lot from you in terms of working in this field, but having some really strong critiques about this field. And you've written a lot about it. Your amazing book on trauma and madness and mental health services and blogs on Madden America. And as a clinical psychologist, as someone who focuses on trauma, I'm really curious also as your friend and colleague in terms of some of your own personal lived experiences that really shaped some of the ways that you are a dissenting clinician in the mental health field. You want the long answer, the short answer? The long one, please. Well, I think I've, I think that started really early on because I knew the kind of family I grew up in, and it was a pretty volatile and fairly abusive family environment. And my brother was kind of the quote-unquote identified patient uh, throughout our childhood, and I just saw how many times that put on medications, or he would schools tried to put him in special classes or I would have to get pulled into family sessions and nobody ever actually talked about what was happening. It was almost like it was somehow irrelevant and it was always very bizarre to me. Why are, why are we not talking about what is actually happening here and why, why we're even here in the first place? So I kind of really hated therapists uh, since I was a kid <laughs> because of that. And yet somehow I was 
drawn to psychology too. I think for what, I think the appeal was the understanding it promises to provide. And so in high school, I took an advanced placement psychology class and I was all set to, you know, graduate with honors and go off to college and whatnot. And it was actually that psychology class that made me drop out of high school. (laughs) Not joking. I was was like, I can't, I hate this. I hate school. I want nothing to do with any of this anymore. And so I I dropped out of school. And it was a weird sort of back and forth for a while of going back to college and then, well, I got my GED and then, you know, going to community college or whatever and going back and forth. And for whatever reason, every time I went back, I would be back in psychology classes, which would make me leave again. Finally, I, I stuck around in college and was getting a dual degree uh, with both religion uh, studies as well as psychology. And even to think about it now, the stark contrast between the professors, where you know the religion professors are all about, they're very excited about learning and exploring and questioning things and opening things up and the discussions would be so rich and exciting, whereas the psychology classes were always about conformity and don't ask questions and I'm the boss and I know everything and they were very anxiety inducing. Um, and so I graduated college and decided to pursue acting instead. <laughs> but then along the ways, blah, 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 trauma comes back. It always comes back to bite us if we don't deal it, deal with it. and. I was once again drawn back to to getting a degree. And I always liked social psychology, really looking at the sociology of the world and, and how we operate within context of groups and relationships and things like that. And so that was what I thought I was going to do until I did go back to graduate school. And kind of that was when things started to break down for me, in large part because I thought, okay, I'm all grown up now. I'm going to go get this graduate degree in psychology. Let me go to therapy and actually try to work on trauma, all of this abuse and and whatnot from childhood. And that's where things really broke down. One after another, after another, after another clinician not only failed me, but just wanted to judge me, put me in a box. Immediately, all anybody could ever say was drugs, 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 drugs. You have another drug. Why are you not on drugs? Why won't you go see a psychiatrist? And then I was uncooperative because I wouldn't go see a psychiatrist. And it just, eventually I finally broke down, broke down and, and couldn't function for quite some time. And it was in and of itself quite a traumatizing experience. I'm sure many people can relate to how traumatizing the system can be when you're really in crisis. But then the odd thing was that I, I, was lucky enough to have some good therapists and some people who really allowed me to see that, oh, this actually can be helpful too. And I think that's what finally made me decide I am going to go back to school. I am going to get my my doctorate degree and, and I want to be one of those people who tries to make a difference and tries to change the system as to whatever extent I can. Here we are all these years later. Here we are. I'd love to hear you describe maybe some of the things that some of the kind of the worst therapy sessions that you were in as a client, like what that really looked like compared to the ones that you feel like really supported you. I feel like a lot of folks listening might have some, some experiences with shit therapists. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can think of two sessions re- that really stand out at that time where it was just one person after another kind of failed me. And the first one was the very first therapy session I went to. And so it was an intake session and God bless this guy. I actually really have nothing personally against him. He probably is a good therapist. And I think that he he's not a bad guy. He's one of the few people in this uh, at this time that I don't have hard feelings towards, despite the fact that he started the whole domino effect. It was my very first session and he's asking me, you know, about my history and whatnot. And my mother had committed suicide and I had found her when I was a teenager. And he starts asking me descriptive details about my finding my mother uh, to the point that he's asking me what it smelled like and kept insisting, making guesses as to what he thought it would smell like. And he's crying the whole time. He had to get up and go get himself a Kleenex because he was crying so hard. My very first session in therapy as an adult and not knowing this guy, uh, needless to say, that is, was the catalyst to me breaking down. Um, Mm -hmm. That was an egregious, terrible session, but in the vein of somebody actually trying to be helpful. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people can try too hard, I think. Uh, on the flip side, I saw somebody else shortly there, because obviously I did not go back to see that person again. No, but and when I and when I called the next day, because I had completely like overnight, I was it was like night and day. I, I was a completely different person. I just went from being my everyday self to completely not functioning. Uh, yeah. And I called the clinic and was like, no, my my boyfriend at the time called the clinic was like, what did you do to my girlfriend? Like, what happened? And they said, she should have just gone to a psychiatrist. She clearly needs to be on meds. That was the response. And I didn't know any better at the time. You know, I didn't learn any of this stuff. So I went to see somebody else shortly after that. And this person, (laughs) she was just, it was a crazy making session where I would say X and she would say, oh, well, clearly that's black and white thinking. And I'd be like, that has nothing to do with what I said. What? And, and I'd say, why? And she would say another symptom. And like, I can remember the dialogue in my head and it truly wasn't even related to what I was saying. I could understand maybe if it was like I was being extreme in some kind of way. And she's like, well, you're being kind of extreme right now. That's some black and white thinking there. But I wasn't. <laughs> it was... It was very bizarre. And I remember at the time thinking, why is she, why is she not responding to like anything I'm actually saying? I couldn't understand why she was saying the things that she was until, of course, I realized that she was just diagnosing me um, and trying to just literally distort everything I was saying into a diagnosis. And those were the two, I think, worst sessions that I had. There was plenty of bad things, but like those two stand out as so egregious in the ways that they can destroy a person. Mm-hmm. And then there was, I remember going, seeing the like head of the clinic at one point and just begging her to not send me to a hospital because I didn't understand what was happening and I didn't know what was real and what wasn't. I just kept repeating over and over again, please don't send me to a hospital. And she, and she says the name of that first therapist, he didn't do anything wrong. In response to me saying, please don't send me to a hospital, she says, he didn't do anything wrong. And I was like, I didn't, I'm not even talking about him. 
Mm-hmm. He was not even in the conversation, and she said it like three or four times. Mm-hmm. That was her whole point of that session with me was liability. Yeah. So, yeah. On the flip side, what was a good session? Many. That I have many, many memories of good sessions. I think the first time that somebody, yeah, the first time that I was in a session and I got mad at the therapist and the therapist turned around and said, I'm sorry. Mm. That blew my mind that the person didn't tell me it was my fault, didn't get defensive, didn't say, well, I was just being irrational, whatever. I said, this thing upset me. And they said, you're right. I'm sorry. It's a thing people can do. <laughs> and I think just more moments like that of like treating me like a human being, really genuinely trying to understand how what I was experiencing made sense. Not pathologizing me. Uh, even when things were super just super bizarre and all over the place and and didn't make any sense and was totally not even anywhere remotely close to reality. It was like, okay, tell me more. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Let's actually try to understand this, not just freaking out and saying, here's a drug, shut up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it sounds like characteristically, some of the worst sessions are where there's just defensiveness. And then on the flip side, people actually being humble. And it just being a relationship between two human beings. Probably more complex than that, but that's for for sure, yeah. Yeah. In your writing in particular, you do a really amazing job of pointing out some of the defensiveness that the fields of psychiatry and psychology have. And I'd love to hear you dig into that because it sounds like a lot of aspects of your lived experience kind of go into this, but also just curious about some of your experiences, like how you really came to develop your critique and analysis um, around what you feel needs to shift. Well, I think for sure, for me, I, I never wanted to have my lived experience be, I'm not a big fan of using anecdotes to try to prove a point. I very much am research minded in that regard. And so it really was about reading as much as I could of research and largely research that is not being done in the United States and just really immersing myself in all of that. And I was working on a study uh, when I was in my master's program, uh, a study on trauma. And I think that was where a lot of things started to open up. And I really had opportunities in that situation to look at certain phenomena that were popping up around trauma and whatnot. And, and, we publish a, a, an article. I think that that was what sort of, I didn't have an argument. I was very confused for a long time, just trying to understand A, what happened to me and B, why does it feel like the approach that's being taken is so counterintuitive to what seems like would make sense, but trying to do it from a place of where I'm not vilifying everybody I come across. Cause I really don't believe that I really don't believe in good people and bad people, period. But I certainly don't believe that people come into this field for nefarious reasons for the most part. Yeah. Um, so it was also very confusing to me that like these people who really do want to help do so much harm and are so kind of cool sometimes. 
So it was me really wanting to understand that too. And I think in the beginning of when I went um, to my doctoral program, A, I was very naive to the defensiveness. And I thought, well, people just don't know this research. Let me tell them all about it, which did not <laughs> go over well at all. And me trying to research them and, and trying to develop studies, which I did in my first two years of studying the students and teachers of the school as to why they have terrible attitudes towards patients. <laughs> but I think my particular program was really a good fit for me because there were certain professors there that I think really liked to cause problems. Uh, they liked troublemakers. So they would sometimes aid me on <laughs> and then be like, why are you doing what you're doing? I was always in trouble. And I think that those experiences allowed me to understand more and more about why the system is kind of set up how it is. And I do think that most people, I think most people come into this uh, field because of their own history, family histories of trauma. Yeah. I just think, I think what largely tends to pan out is that people probably similar to myself are not the identified patient growing up and really, they really cling rigidly onto these ideas and beliefs because it helps them make sense without having to ever deal with the actual family dynamics. If you can just blame the brain or you can blame this you know, abstract idea of a mental illness or you can just drug it away, you don't ever have to deal with my anger towards my sibling or my aunt or whatever. So that defensiveness, I think, comes in large part from their lived experience. And that's a hard reality sometimes to hold uh, where it really is competing lived experiences. And I think that sometimes that's why communication breaks down so much in trying to make change or when people who are advocates or whatnot come to the table, it, it's really hard to get anywhere because they have just as much vested interest in holding on to their beliefs and worldviews for the same exact reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. You know, as you've kind of found your own path in working with people, whether it's within the system or outside of the system, what have you seen really work in terms of shifting that defensiveness, shifting public perception, shifting the way that uh, clinicians work with clients? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing shifts it. <laughs> That's why I'm more focused on uh, trying to, on my own private practice and trying to bring in young trainees and people who are newly graduated and to educate them and to make the difference that way because I gave up. Honestly, it's like banging my head against a wall. Some of the fights that, I mean, people can really resort to some nasty tactics. A lot of that gaslighting and uh, I, I haven't seen anything shift. Mm -hmm. I think the only thing I see shift is the people who I'm close to, who I have close relationships with, and they might get curious sometimes. Or I think the more open one can be to just say, here's this thing, take it or leave it. People start to be sort of loosely drawn drawn towards whatever it might be but even then you know they have jobs to keep and they're being told by a thousand other people that this is the way to do it and it's you know people want to hold on to what makes sense not question and be confused especially when working with people where there is a lot of chaos and there is a lot of emotion and there is a lot of confusion just in that space is inevitable when working with people who are suffering in some kind of way. And so people want to have ready-made answers and nice boxes to put things in because it helps them, helps them cope. Yeah. yeah. So I give up. 
I mean, kind of, you're, you're still someone that, you know, teaches and writes a lot about this. And I think that that also might not have the impact that we, we can immediately see, but I still think that that does have a big impact. Starfish. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Analogy. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> yes. Actually, I think someone else um, on this podcast brought up that analogy. I think it was D Rocco in the, in the episode about addiction, she talks about that picking up one starfish at a time at the beach, throwing it back into the water and saying like, you know, someone coming across and saying, well, you know, what you're doing is a waste of time. It doesn't matter. More starfish are just going to wash up on the beach. And, and you just say, well, it matters to this one and to this one and to this one. But, but one of the things that I've heard you speak so well about and, and really kind of be willing to incredibly self-reflective about too is I've heard you kind of comedically call psychology a, a cult <laughs> and an ideology that's really upholding capitalist values for folks that are really kind of not so deep in this in in radical mental health can you describe that but I think if you look at religion as a set of ideas that people come together around that helps make sense of the world that helps give you, that helps make sense of the right and wrongness of the world, that helps you have a sense of justice and fairness in the world, which that is essentially at the core of it, what religion is. It gives you rules for how to live and how to exist in the world. Similarly, certain sets of politics can take on that same flavor as well. And I think in this day and age, the field of psychology slash psychiatry is, is our modern day religion come together around these sets of ideas that tells us how we're supposed to live, what's right and wrong as far as how we should be and exist in the world. It helps us make sense of everything. If somebody's hurt, well, then that's because their brain is broken or whatever it might be. We don't have to really ever deal with the ambiguity and messiness of it all. It's all because of genes and we have simple answers for it. And I don't think it was always that way. I think for all of his flaws, Freud made the difference he did because he's like his elaborate, elaborate decades long theories around the complexities of human nature. You know, that gives it, that did give a lot to sort of all over and learn how to explore and these various different phenomena and how to maybe heal from certain things. Uh, but he was never trying to give us answers to how to, to the world, which I feel like in this day and age, psychiatry does. And they really have the power that priests used to have. You know, they are completely intertwined with our government systems. And if you don't abide by their law, you you get shipped off to the hospital. You're a heretic. If you act outside of of these um, tenets, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in what ways do you feel like, at least in America, dominant capitalistic model? How do you think therapists are maybe unwittingly engaging in that? Well, I think the idea is certainly very individualistic. If you're suffering or you're experiencing X, Y, or Z, it's about you. It really is about never questioning the greater culture at large. Um, that it, you know, if we, you know, I'm in New York City, you look outside and everything is gray and these are tall ass buildings and everything's so loud all the time. So everybody is at a heightened level of uh, uh, 
stimulation at all times. There's very little nature. The, the animals that exist are about like five species, most of them just being rats. And, you know, people still want to build more and they want to make more and they want to do more and buy more. And it's like, wow, maybe this is what the problem is. But psychiatry says, no, the problem is in your brain and you just need to learn how to come around to accepting all of this and, and you should be happy with this. And certainly corporations have, you know, having a, a, an industrial psychologist is like the big thing. You bring a psychologist into your, your corporation and teach people mindfulness. You know, you teach them how to manipulate conversations so that everybody can get along and all the right things to say and manipulate certain benefits to make sure people stick around instead of actually being like, hey, maybe this whole setup is messed up and we don't need to manipulate people in the first place. Uh, but that's mm -hmm. never a question. It's really about trying to get people to accept and conform to this culture that we're in rather than ever changing the culture. Yeah. Yeah. In this day and age too, the idea of having to really brand yourself and, you know, diagnoses are, this is another reason why people do not want to let it go because you brand yourself around a diagnosis, you're golden. I'm a specialist in OCD. I'm a specialist in borderline. I'm a specialist in schizophrenia. And boom, your business is, is through the roof. Yeah. People love that. Yeah. What are some of the values and ethics that you have come to operate on now as a clinician? I mean, I think I always try to keep in mind where I've been and the words of all the, the voices of all the people who have been in even worse situations. And you know, I'm not trying to rescue the world. It is a private practice. It's not like I'm not working in some community mental health center because I would get fired for after five minutes of doing that anyways. But I really try to be able to, and certainly, and, and anybody who comes into my practice and works with me or who I'm training, other than for insurance purposes, we do not use diagnoses. We do not talk poorly about clients. Most of the work that we do behind closed doors of where we're trying to kind of you know, talk about a certain client that somebody might be struggling with or something is really talking about us. Why are we struggling? What is it about us that is not allowing us to be what this, where this person needs us to be? What do we need to do differently? Very much about making sure that we are always respecting our, our clients and, and always trying to understand where they're why what they're experiencing makes sense. We try to not turn anybody away so long as they're able to function within the confines of once or twice a week therapy or something. Their safety, I, we can't take everybody, but certainly we're not turning people away because they're too much or because their diagnosis or because of fears of liability because they're suicidal. I mean, that's 70% of our practice anyway. So we wouldn't uh, mm -hmm. be seeing anybody if we turn people away for those things. And being able to figure out how to set things up so that we can also make sure we're trying to make things accessible to people, trying to put out there, hey, there's another way to look at this. That's so trying to continue writing. And, and right now I'm in the process of trying to put together some workshops and things like that to be able to say, hey, let's come together and realize like you're experiencing these things for a reason. You don't need to hate yourself. There's nothing to be ashamed of. You're not sick and defective. Like 
that message is something that I think I'm always trying to get across in any way that I can. Mm-hmm. Even if you feel like you maybe have <laughs> given up on kind of reducing some of the defensiveness in the field, do you have a vision, something that you would like to see for this field, for how we deal with crisis? I'm pretty pessimistic on that one. All right, we'll say more about the pessimism. <laughs> we can go there. Let's do it. <laughs> the whole thing's just got to be broken down and built from scratch. I don't know. Like, I don't, all I can see is that people take the ideas, like open dialogue is a great example, right? You've got this great, very systematic, but very also cultural and idealistic way of working with people in crisis that is very holistic from top to bottom and everybody's kind of on board with this and then you bring it to America and now it's trademarked and like, you got to pay $5,000 for one module of a session and nobody's on board with it anyways. They're just trying to use certain aspects of it to say like, look at this cool thing we're doing, but really they're just doing the same shit anyways. That's what I think happens. I think that's like, all they do is co-op things and turn it into it just being the same thing, but with new flowery language on top. Yeah. I mean, say more about the like breaking down. If if we're going to see things crumble and disintegrate, (laughs) what do you want to see crumble? (laughs) I mean, if you think about the history of the world, right? Like that's the way anything, everything has changed is that it gets big, it gets big. Everybody's like, it gets super powerful and then it crumbles and something else takes its place. Whether we're talking about empires or religions or Whatever it might be, that's always the way it's been. Imagine that's what it's going to take for this too. It's going to eventually get too big for its own britches and it will burst. Yeah. <laughs> now, are we talking about psychology or are we talking about America? <laughs> both. both. <laughs> <laughs> that's both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oddly, though, if uh, you know, I'm not rooting for anybody's demise, but if America did kind of go the direction it seems to be going. I imagine that psychiatry and the whole system with that would go with it because mm-hmm. it's a very American way of dealing with things. Mm-hmm. And because we're so powerful as a society, other countries conform to what we're doing. When if we're suddenly not in power anymore, something else might arise. Absolutely. So I also know you as someone who's quite funny, comedian. Is there a way that you bring some humor into this work? I certainly have already in this in this episode. I mean, yeah, I think laughter is the, one of the most important things, and all the checklists in the world as far as is somebody improving, blah blah blah, can't ever measure up to. I know somebody's starting to get better when we can laugh together. You know, yeah, where it's like, hey, we just took a moment and and we're just being silly. It's like, ah. Something has shifted here. And those are beautiful moments. So absolutely, laughter is a big part of the work and and I think is absolutely necessary for us to have any point to life. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you've certainly been, you know, a bit of a a role model for me as a dissenting clinician in this field. Um, (laughs) Stop. (laughs) Serious. What what would be some of your, I don't know, maybe even if it's not advice, invitations for reflection for people who are in this field, 
thinking about going into this field. Yeah. New clinicians. I mean, that's part of what I love about being able to have my own thing going is bringing in new clinicians. And I think the biggest piece of advice that I always give people and where we kind of tend to start at is stop trying to rescue people. Yes. Be a human with another human being and know that it's messy. I'd say that's my top advice. And if you can't deal with sometimes your the feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, just sitting there knowing there's nothing you're going to do to make this better right now, can't sit with that and do your own work before trying to, to do this work. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's one of the major reasons why we can shift into, you know, giving people safety contracts to make sure that they won't commit suicide or going into liability and fears and concerns around liability. It's our inability to sit with that fear, perhaps shame, anxiety, whatever's going on inside of us when we're faced with someone who's in a crisis and we don't know what to do. Not even just crisis. Somebody comes in and simply they just have anxiety and it's like, you can't even sit a lot of people can't even sit with that. It's like immediately we need to make this anxiety go away. And it's like, this person has been dealing with this anxiety for 30 years. It's going to be okay if we let it go for a little while and just actually try to understand it first. You know, I think a lot of people really struggle with that. Yeah. I have a vision for a school where we learn that, where we learn how to be with our own emotions right? and sit with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Dalai Lama said, couple of years back that was it the Dalai Lama or was it Tick Tick Nat Hong? Of how they were shocked by the schools in the West because in their school systems, at least in Tibet, kids are taught from a very young age very explicitly the skill of empathy, whereas mm-hmm. here we're very much taught about ourselves. And I always thought that was such an interesting thing of what if we were just taught empathy from a very young age? That'd be interesting. How to really put ourselves in somebody else's shoes separate from ourselves. 90% of this of, of our society cannot do that. They can feel sorry for people. They can understand things that are similar to their own experiences, which is also part of the problem within the system, is that people really like working with people who are like themselves and they don't really understand people who aren't. So the you know, typical patient who has a really good experience in therapy tends to be upper middle class, white, anxious, perfectionistic, maybe maybe some depression. That's the ideal client for most people, and they tend to do very well. Yeah, empathy school and uh, uh, sitting with our feelings school. <laughs> yes, let's build it, Jazz. <laughs> we'll start in Germany it. where it has a shot. Exactly. What are your visions? Turn it literally or figuratively? You know, that's a big question. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think similar. I I think some of my focus goes immediately towards crisis because you know, not obviously, not not everyone is in a mental health crisis, but I go there first because I think how we treat people who are really suffering and really at a loss, like those our biggest moments, those are our biggest opportunities to really show up for people. And we often don't. 
It's often our, you know, our fear that gets in the way. We kind of rely on these large institutions. We have this Medicaid and separate model, and we do exactly the things that are opposite of what I would consider at least to be healing. We isolate people. We take away their agency instead of giving them choices. And we tell them that they're crazy. Like, I think that in and of itself is absolutely absurd. <laughs> like, when, has it ever been, like, you know, really healing for someone to hear? I think you're absolutely nuts and dysfunctional and broken. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> it's not in my mind. I mean, well, the I understand thing too is that a lot of people do actually find that to be really healing, or at least that's when their it perception. Comes with because an answer. Yeah, it has a, it's an answer. So the same reason why clinicians cling on to it. So do my patients, but also so many people who are in crisis already believe themselves to be defective and broken. And yeah. so somehow it feels validating to hear somebody else tell them that, that you're right. You are broken and, and, and defective. It feels like, yeah. oh yeah, that makes sense. That's exactly correct. Mm-hmm. Which is probably the most devastating part of it of all. I agree. And then it's kind of a complete, yeah, giving away our power to people that are, who do have the power and authority, but we presume to have the answers to what's going to, even if it's not going to fix us, what's going to help us manage, you know, our suffering in certain ways. And yeah, you know, I, I don't want to take away people's right to engage in the system, to take medication, to like engage in some of the services that our current system offers. But my biggest vision is that we have other options and that we have true consent. Like, I don't think that consent exists without options. And so we, we currently live in this really incredibly coercive system that I think, you know, Really, we don't even think about different ways that we could be dealing with people who are suffering or in crisis. So, yeah, I guess my biggest vision just really involves multiplicity, options, choices. There's so many ways that people can heal. There's so many ways that we can move through even the absolute most challenging experiences that you can think of. And you and I, I think, have this connection where we both have a deep investment in trauma and psychosis in particular, part of part of both of our lived experiences. And so that's also um, the vision that I have, that we don't have this hierarchy in mental health of, you know, who's the who's the the good patient and the bad patient, but also, you know, the kind of hierarchy of diagnoses based on like functionality, like who's more functional, who's which is usually who's more um you know, able to operate within capitalism and within our society. But specifically, I mean, the huge elements of discrimination that we have against people that are labeled as bipolar or schizophrenic. And honestly, what I really think it is, is that when we look at someone who we kind of see is at the extreme end of madness, right? Like in in New York City, it's not too uncommon to come across someone who's presumably, you know, houseless, who's on the streets, who is talking to themselves, who's displaying this kind of quote unquote unusual behavior. And I think we keep this hard line between normal and abnormal because we don't want to see how it's so possible for any one of us to end up in that kind of situation. 
Like we all have an element of the potential for madness in us. And we will do anything to separate ourselves, to say we're the normal ones, they're the abnormal ones, to do anything to create that chasm between each other. I think adding to that, totally agree, is this piece of also wanting to always be good. And I think oftentimes when somebody comes along and let's say they are being aggressive in the street or uh, they start screaming and yelling or they're being highly inappropriate in some kind of way. The response is, is, is to very, just to be above it all and very intellectualized and very much like, well, this is your disease talking. We just need to drug you and blah, blah, blah. Rather than actually being like, you're pissing me off right now. And this is like, we're going to deal with the fact that this is a conflict between two people and like, this isn't okay. And I'm going to own the fact that I'm not, I'm not necessarily good right now because I'm angry. And how are we going to mm-hmm. actually be honest with one another and work through that, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to be the good doctor. It's just so angelic with that soft voice too. I mean, the idea of somebody screaming and yelling and meeting them with, I'm going to go on a rant. Stop. <laughs> no, please do. <laughs> <laughs> what you said before too is something that definitely um, I think has been very, very apparent and and quite fascinating to me throughout the work that I've been doing in, over the last however many years is seeing how the people who ha- are more well put together actually struggle way more with change mm-hmm. versus the people who are in crisis. And the people who are in crisis tend to have so much more drastic change and actually can have, in many ways, have the opportunity to have so much more rewarding lives and the people who don't ever go into crisis. Mm. And the fact that we are so quick to treat crisis as this, you know, terrible thing to immediately just make nice and, and put together. We miss so much opportunity in that for all of that change that can genuinely happen if you can be patient and, and dive into that messy, icky place with someone. You know, absolutely agreed. We don't give people the opportunities to fall apart. And when we do, we do anything that we can to stop it from happening. We don't let people go through that process. Yeah. Say more about that in terms of, you know, maybe some of the the folks that you've seen clients or not clients who really kind of have this, because I can relate to that too. At some points, if my body, if my actual physical being didn't break down to such an extreme amount, that would absolutely be me. I would be the one, you know, just kind of like grasping, trying to be, you know, good, perfect, all those things. And and I'm, I'm actually incredibly grateful to psychosis for giving me the opportunity to burst out of that. Yeah. Say more about what you've seen with that folks that really just kind of try to keep it all contained. I mean, there's an incredible amount of anxiety that goes with that. The layers upon layers of prison walls that get put up to to keep trying to contain whatever all of that stuff that really wants to come out, but that the person will not allow to come out and because they're so afraid of not being good and not being kind of perfect in some kind of way. And oftentimes it that's when uh, people end up with a lot of autoimmune diseases and things like that. And, a lot of the body ends up breaking down instead. And mm-hmm. I've definitely seen that over and over again, for sure. 
Yeah. And the amount of being able to breathe when, when that kind of person suddenly gets angry and it actually starts to come out and they, they let themselves be a little messy and irrational. And it's like, yeah, this is, this is good stuff. You know, it's uh, it's nice to see it. And, and I have seen people who do that and, and some of their autoimmune issues, they don't go away, it's not magic, but it does go into remission. Oftentimes it certainly decreases in the intensity. Similarly, though, that can also happen if somebody does a lot of physical exercise in the right way, a big mm-hmm. proponent of physical exercise. Um, yes, that's so true. And that's the part, too, about psychiatry that gets me kind of particularly angry. It's, that it's not to say that biology isn't a huge component of it. It's just that it's not all in the brain. There's a reason why trauma and autoimmunity is so highly correlated. Um, or, you know, people, myself included, who are holding it all in have such high rates of, of chronic illness that has direct impacts on our mental health, direct correlations to depression and anxiety, even psychosis. And that's all the stuff that we're not quite yet willing to look at because we're so obsessed with brain chemistry at this moment. Now, this is also a uh, manifestation of a larger issue within the medical industry altogether where, you know, you go to one doctor and they say, well, they're looking through a pinhole of their specialty. And then they say, well, go to this doctor instead. And now go to this doctor instead. And all the doctors are going to give you different diagnoses and different drugs and different things where nobody's ever looked at you as a whole person. And, you know, you get something like heart disease where it is well known that is a lifestyle uh, disease 99% of the time. That's not to blame the person or should we shame people for that? We Nobody knows how to eat in America and what mm-hmm. is available around us most of the time is pretty unhealthy food. Mm-hmm. Especially uh, if you grow up poor. Absolutely. And, and yeah. we sit down all day long and we don't exercise and we don't have nature very often. And then people get heart disease and the doctor is just like, take a pill. <laughs> it's like, can we have a conversation first about maybe like non-shaming ways to help this person start to understand how to make changes in their life? Those conversations yeah. might come up peripherally or, or in shaming ways, especially if the person is overweight. Oh, it's just because you're fat. And it's like, well, okay, that's also not helpful. Mm-hmm. But it is like, it's super complex. There's a lot that's going on. And obviously it's biological too. But if you don't change the bigger picture of what's going on and why it's happened in the first place, yep. what are you doing? Yeah. You used to be a personal trainer, right? So that was kind of one of the first ways that you were working with people. Yeah, I did that for 10 years. That's very cool. I'll never yeah, forget, just, just like the epitome of all of this, one of my specialties was teaching people for the marathon, um, coaching people for running. I'll never forget this person kept coming with knee pain and they were going to go to an orthopedic. They they did go to the orthopedic doctor and the orthopedic doctor wanted to naturally do surgery then on their knee. And I said, well, do me a favor. I want to watch you run. And I don't know if you've ever seen people run like this where they're running and their foot kind of goes out in a circle. Yeah. So this person's leg kept going out in a circle like that. And I told them like, this is, I can almost guarantee this is what's causing your knee pain. Do me a favor, 
put the orthopedist on hold for one month and wear a knee brace when you run. And, and we'll work on trying to get your posture different and, and change that. Person's knee pain went away. But all the orthopedic surgeon could think about is we're going to go in and slice that thing up. Like mm-hmm. Our medical system as a whole is very broken. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Going back to the, the kind of idea of crisis and it being this, you know, letting yourself move through crisis, if you want to share, was that part of your story? Did you have a moment in time that you kind of experienced really letting yourself move through the pain and the trauma? I don't think I was in the midst of crisis saying, let me move through this and not try to do anything about it. (laughs) Of course. Um, I had no choice but to be in it uh, for sure. I think I was lucky that I didn't end up in the hospital. Um, I also was lucky that the five different drugs I was put on made me very, very sick. Uh, And so I threw them all away. Uh, so in that sense, it did kind of force me to be in it probably longer than if any of those two things had gone differently. But then beyond that, it was years and years and years of very, very intense therapy of going in it and in it and it being really messy and weird and scary and for the therapist as well and constant mini crises here and there of being broken down and built back up again and broken down again. and. I do think that that's something that I bring into the work that I do now too, of challenging people. And therapy's messy. If it, I always tell people, if you want to talk about a second piece of advice that I would tell my trainees that come in is if, if therapy is nice, you're not doing therapy. Mm-hmm. It feels good all the time. You're not doing therapy. You're just yes. appeasing each other. So it is a lot about challenging people and trying to, find that right balance of pushing them to the breaking point without actually breaking them because we need to function and we don't need to push them all the way into crisis, right? Mm-hmm. I do think there is something about pushing up against that line over and over and over again that finally allows us to move through to a very different place. Mm-hmm. Rather than people who have just learned to contain it, I feel like they're always just always just coping. You know, They're always just one step away from the next potential breakdown or that's a, that's a scary way to live, I, I feel. I mean, some people can't help it, not at, but whatever. It's complicated, mm-hmm. it's, right? It's precarious. But it's also, like you said, I mean, yeah, like most of us that experience kind of a big breaking point or multiple breaking points, it's not necessarily by by choice most of the time. You, it's not like something you allow yourself to do. It just, it just happens. Unless you and took you don't ayahuasca and like that was... <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But what I do find fascinating is that, you know, what we do when we're in crisis, how we respond in that moment and afterwards, like in the integration process, which sometimes is even harder in different ways than the, the crisis itself. I'm super curious about what kept you willing to be messy. Because, you know, again, there's so many ways that we could respond in and post crisis. And I would say for myself, there I don't even know what it was. There was just something inside of me that said, no, this is necessary. Like, no, you need to be going through this. Like, no, this is worthwhile. Let, like, let's go crazy. <laughs> like, it was this like something that has to happen. Like, let's let's move through it. It was some kind of weird faith in the process 
that I didn't even know that I had that no one necessarily like taught me or told me. And I don't really know like how else to describe it, but I'm always curious about what that's like for, for other folks. Like you clearly had a willingness to move through the messiness. What was that for you? Well, I imagine that for many of us, it's this feeling of, you, you know, when you're walking around trying to just hold it all together and that's exhausting. And so there's also, it's not just, I need to go through this. It's I'm tired and fuck it. I'm letting it, I'm just letting it all out. It's relieving, yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, I'm done. Let it, yeah. let it just, let it all come out. It's all right. So there's definitely a piece of to that. I think for most people, rather than a cognizant awareness of I'm going to heal because I've done this. I think also there's a factor of once I got through the crisis process and was to a place where I could just put it all away and pretend this never happened. Not doing that, I think, was because I felt safe. I had a good relationship with the therapist and I think I felt safe to be able to open it up in safe ways and kind of go in and out of it, if you will. But I don't, I don't think I would have been able to do that alone. Yeah. I think it really does always come back to relationship. Yeah. Do we have a safe space to be fully messy, fully ourselves? Mm, I love this. I love talking about these things. Mm. So what are you working on right now in your practice, outside of your practice? How can people find you? Mostly uh, trying to build the practice that I really want to build. I think some things have changed recently that I think is finally opening up the door to really allowing me to build the thing that I kind of envision and dream of in my head which largely is providing that safe space for people to not, for it to not be the stereotypical therapist kind of office. So it's, I think that's really where most of my energies are about 23 hours a day is <laughs> trying to make that happen, which is a long-term process, of course, but uh, trying to build a really cohesive team we're all like-minded and kind of on the same page of where we want to go and, and what we want to provide for people. Awesome. I'll always drop a, a promo for my book, but I am definitely not working on that. That's <laughs> somewhat old news at this point. <laughs> well, it's an, it's not even that old. It's an oldie, but a goodie. Say, <laughs> say more about your book. It touches upon a lot of these themes, but it is very also research heavy. And it was, Originally, because, you know, there's a lot of this work being done. I think the thing that made me the angriest throughout school was the trauma field. Uh, I I find them very hypocritical, and I almost prefer the hardcore medical psychiatrists over people in the trauma field. Um, At least they're honest. But the trauma field has a way of really, um, they've come... There's so much great research and there's so much understanding of how the body works and how trauma does really have this impact on people and all the various ways that can shift our psyche. And and it's just such great research. And then they double down on, but people who are psychotic are still crazy. And Mm -hmm. so they go to great lengths to make these delineations between dissociation or PTSD versus schizophrenia or bipolar. And in large part, the lines are drawn down 
gender and socioeconomic and race lines. So I think that was my, like, continues to be my biggest beef of all, because you have the knowledge right there and you're actively withholding it from the subset of people that you are going to still ostracize as not this or whatever. And then even getting into why do we even need to delineate what trauma is? It's so stupid. Like the original psychoanalysts and whatnot, they weren't talking about some people have trauma and some people don't. They were like, hey, life happens. Let's break down all the various complex ways that life happens and then results in what we're seeing here. Uh, mm-hmm. So then we get into these dumb, idiotic art- arguments about, well, not everything's trauma. Well, no shit, not everything's trauma, but everybody has had life. Like, it's complicated. <laughs> Can we just deal with that? Anyways, so this book was because uh, there was Paris Williams, if you've ever heard of him, his dissertation was looking at, he went and interviewed a bunch of people who had gone through psychosis and what they found to be helpful and not helpful in their process and in therapy and whatnot. And and so I did this with people who identified with a diagnosis of uh, dissociative identity disorder, in Mm -hmm. large part trying to say it's the same thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not that like everybody... It's the same thing of what people are going through underneath it all, right? And it's just, yeah, it might look different here or there, but it, at the end of the day, we're dealing with all the same stuff. So that is largely what my book is, is A, these first-person kind of experiences, what they find to be helpful and, and not helpful, which is a lot of what we've been talking about here today, is all along the same lines, but also a lot of saying, like, these arbitrary breakdowns of, these diagnostic categories and what we call crazy and what we call trauma and what we like is all bullshit at the end of the day. That's, that's the gist of my book. Like, yes, it's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for being willing to have this discussion with me and just sharing all of your personal and professional experiences. It's always been really inspiring for me. And I know a lot of listeners are really going to love it too. Thank you. I am so grateful to you for being here. If you love this discussion and you're interested in mental health activism and transformative mental health, I highly recommend checking out the Institute for the Development of Human Arts. That's idha-nyc.org. At this point, we have members and faculty from all around the world. We have online courses, events, and opportunities for movement building. So if you're not yet a member, you can sign up for that in the link below. As always, I love hearing what you think, so please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, and I will see you next time.